Let me encourage you this morning to take your Bibles and find Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the fifth book in the Bible. So if you start at the very beginning, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to talk to you today. Uh, The message is entitled, Your Passion is Contagious. Your Passion is Contagious. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to attend a lot of different conferences and seminars and workshops about leadership, and often leadership is defined as influence, influence. And it can be applied to many areas, not just in a workplace, but also at home, because you could say the same thing about parenting. What does it mean to be an effective dad or an effective mom, it is often traceable to your influence. And so I want us to give some thought today to this concept of influencing those around us, uh, influencing our friends, people we work with. We know as believers that part of our uh, role, one of the reasons you and I are still here and not already in heaven, is because God wants to use us to reach more people to share the gospel, the good news with others. And so that requires a relationship, and that requires a measure of influence. How do you increase your influence? What what are those factors that affect that? Now, there are limits because you're dealing with another person. If they're not interested, they're just not interested. And if they don't like you, they just don't like you. If they don't want to respond to you, they just don't respond to you. But there is a piece that is entirely in your control and, and often we think influence maybe has to do with how well I speak or how well I dress or how well I look or how much money I have or how much education I have. And maybe we think influence is packaged in those things. Listen, influence can be drilled down to one specific factor in your life, and that's this factor of passion. What you are passionate about determines who and how much you're going to influence someone. It is your passion. If you are passionate about sports, the people you will impact, the people you will talk with, the people you will connect with the most will be others who share that passion of that particular sport. If you're passionate about a particular topic or a subject or a hobby or anything like that, That is how you influence others. It is your passion that enables you to learn. It's your passion that enables you to absorb information. It's your passion that enables you to capture the attention of others. And and it's not only what you are saying, but how you are saying it that affects the people around you. I think particularly today as a church, we ought to be very interested in this issue when it comes to our children and our grandchildren our students, our youth, and not only those in the community. Our passion is contagious. What we are passionate about is what people pick up on. And they accept or reject the rest of what we have to say, often based on our passion. The latest study that I could find about young adults and and children and students who grow up in church and then leave church. And we know that there's a national issue of that in North America. But the latest one was about two to four years old, a research study done at LifeWay. And they found that 70% of young adults 
who indicated that they attended church at least once during their high school years. I'm talking about for one year of their high school years. That of those young adults who were surveyed and who attended church regularly for at least one year in high school, they found that among those individuals that the dropout rate was 70% between the ages of 17 and 19. That means 70% of students coming through churches, when they leave church, when they graduate high school typically, they literally graduate from church. And they quit attending. Now this is true across the board, not only of churches that preach the Bible, but churches that don't preach the Bible. They're experiencing the same phenomenon. Now what's interesting, and we could talk about that a long time, but that's not my purpose. What's interesting to me in that research was that those who didn't drop out, I want to know about those students. The 30% that didn't drop out, what were the factors that most influenced them to continue to attend church after their high school experience in church? Well, there were four things. The fourth one is what I want you to hear, but let me, let me share the other three. Number one, I wanted help from the church making major decisions. Students coming through high school know when they graduate, they have major life decisions to make. They saw the church as a way to find help in making those major decisions. That was one. A second reason they continued. My parents stayed married and attended church together. Now think about that. As they were going through their high school years, you think their formative years are when they're little, but as they were going through high school, one of the factors that affected that generation that stays in church was that they looked at their parents, and their parents stayed together and attended church together. Something that simple, but exerting a powerful influence. A third thing, the pastors in my church helped connect the Bible to my daily life. They saw the Bible is relevant to daily life. They got it. They saw the connection. But here's what I want you to hear. The fourth factor of students that continued in church past the age of 17 was at least one adult from church made a significant investment in me personally and spiritually, and that was between the ages of 15 and 18. Does that make you think, wow, at least one adult made a significant investment in me personally and spiritually between the ages of 15 and 18. Powerful word about influence. Well, the Bible has already told us this. We don't need a research uh, project to figure this out. The Bible already has that answer. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, that we're going to read in just a moment, what we discover is that what he wants most from you and me what our God wants most from you and me is our passion. He wants our passion. And it is through our passion that he intends that we influence the generations to come. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, in this, in this passage, this uh, particular chapter, and we're actually going to be talking about the entire chapter, but Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. And the, the name Deuteronomy actually uh, is composed of two Latin words, deuter, which means second, and onomos, which means law, and it's the second giving of the law. Because this book was given to a generation that did not experience, for the most part, did not experience Sinai, did not experience the thunder and lightning on the mountain, did not experience the presence of God in the way that earlier generations did. 
And so in the second giving of the law, Moses tells the story again of how the Ten Commandments were given, how the law was given, how God delivered them from Egypt, and how he set them apart as his own special people. He retells all of that, and then he comes to chapter 6. And this is what we read in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, Moses says, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Do you hear that? That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. It is God's intent to save your family. Not just you, but he wants to save your children. He wants to save your grandchildren. You, your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So, so his intent is, here's all this law, and I want you to help the next generation and the generation that follows to keep all of these rules and all of these laws. Verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then verse 4, which has got a nickname in Hebrew. It's called the Shema. And it's one of the great verses in Hebrew thought. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Would you pray with me? Father, oh Lord, we welcome you here. Holy Spirit, so many times we walk into this environment not having prepared our heart, having passed days sometimes without not even giving a thought to you, who you are, what you want, what pleases you. And so, Father, we, we gather together in a very mixed sort of way we ask that in this moment you would bring each of us to a place where you capture our heart and our mind and you hold our attention and we hear your voice. So speak to us. Speak through your word. Make your heart plain. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about your passion. The passion for God in verse 5 is the greatest commandment. It is vital that you and I understand that all of the laws of the Old Testament, all the rules of the Old Testament, he is summarizing here. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. I want you to see that that's what Moses is saying. Yes, your children need to keep all these rules. Your grandchildren need to keep all these rules. But really, you can sum it up in one rule. Love God. Love God. Love God. And you know, Jesus did the same thing, didn't he? When he was asked what was the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verse 36, he was asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God. There it is. You shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We wouldn't have any of the problems we have in our society if we did that second one. If we loved our neighbor. And so there it is. The passion for God is the greatest commandment. And so what is Moses saying? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that your life is intended to be a vehicle of passion for God. And, and a conduit or a channel of that passion. And it should overflow and it should affect those around you. God wants to influence the world around us through our own passion for God. It's not about, oh, I have to go and witness and I have to be a good person and I have to go to church and I have to keep all these moral rules. No, you have a passion for God and out of that passion you live your life. And through that passion you influence a generation. And so he speaks of that here, this warmth, this heat, this passion. This is the ultimate command. This is the one thing God wants from every person in this room, is your heart. You remember when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees at one moment in his ministry, and um, it's in Mark 7 where it happens, and he says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What does that say God wants? He wants my heart. He wants my heart. Not just raw obedience. He wants passion. He wants you to know him and to love him. And so if you're a mom today, a dad today, a grandparent today, you can't make your children follow God. You can't make your grandchildren follow God. They grow up. They become young adults. They are adults. You should treat them as adults but you still can influence them with your passion. And this is your assignment, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. He says, and then, and out of the context of that passion, he says, then you can talk about what's right and wrong. Then you can talk about the rules. I want to talk to you first about three threats to your passion for God. What are the things that can threaten your passion for God? Well, just suck the life out of it so that you just feel blah, and you feel dry in your relationship to God. Three things. And so I want to shift to the second half of chapter 6. Uh, the first thing that will kill your passion for God, here's the word, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Met needs. When your needs are met, you don't have a sense of need, do you? When you're in trouble, you'll cry out for God. But when all your needs are met, and everything's going well, and everything's going great, and everything's hunky-dory, you can, you can tweet that, hunky-dory. Anybody ever use that? Hunky-dory. And everything's hunky-dory. Satisfaction is a threat to your passion 
for God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, when you get to that promised land, there's prosperity, all these good things, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so one of the great threats to your passion can actually be God's blessings, can actually be God's goodness as he gives you things and you enjoy those things. Satisfaction can be a threat to your passion. It's easy to quit praying when you don't have any needs it's easy to quit praying when you feel like everything's okay. You got it. Let God take care of the nations of the world, but you've got your little section taken care of. So that first threat is satisfaction. There's a second threat, difficulties. Difficulties can threaten your passion for God. These are unmet needs. In verse 13, he says, It is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve. And then he says in verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. What happened at Massa? Well, when they came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, they were trekking through the wilderness, and the first thing that they complained about was they were hungry. They didn't have enough to eat. You remember that? And what did God provide for them every day but one? What did he provide? Manna. It fell from heaven six days a week. And so they had manna. And then you come to Exodus 17, and they didn't have enough water. Guess what they did? They complained. Exodus 17, verse 1, it says, They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled. Grumbled. Verse 7, And he called the name of the place, here it is, Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by God, saying, here it is, is the Lord among us or not? Now, have you ever hurt so bad that you've asked that question? Where you have had so many problems, and you say, Pastor, you're just talking about me right now. But you've had so many problems, so many difficulties, so many crises, so many pressures, so many stresses, so many needs, and they're not being met. And you're saying, oh God, where are you? And your passion is at an all-time low because your needs are at an all-time high. When we studied Experiencing God last year, one of the things we said is don't ever let your circumstances act as a messenger to you about God's love for you. You cannot determine God's love by looking at your circumstances. The love of God is determined by the cross. God demonstrated his love towards you and that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died for us. So God is love for you. All you got to do is look at the cross. God loves you. No question about it. No matter what's happening to you, I can tell you by the authority of God's word, he loves you as his son, as his daughter. He loves you no matter what else is happening. He loves you. But what happens is you and I look at our circumstances, our needs that are not being met. And we think, how could God love me? 
and let all this trouble come into my life. And so that can kill passion. And you've got to be careful. One of the great times that you and I need to learn to discipline our heart to go worship the Lord is when we're in trouble. The more trouble you're in, the more you need to be on your face before God. And just remind yourself of how much your Father loves you. And worship Him. And let that fire burn your passion for Him. So that's the second thing that can kill it. Difficulties. Difficulties. It's just easy to question whether God cares when you're in trouble. Number three, the third thing that can kill your passion is rule-keeping. Rule-keeping. Scholars call this legalism. It's ignoring your needs. It is just pushing through, just doing the right thing. I don't feel that great about God right now, but I just keep doing what I'm supposed to do. And it's just raw discipline, raw obedience, no passion, no love, no affection for God, just doing the right thing, and you do the right thing every day, every month, every year, and your passion's dead. Oh, you're a good person, as far as everybody can tell. But the thing God wants most from you is not there. And, and so your needs are ignored. So how does, how does rule-keeping kill passion? Well, you know, with most activities in life, there are rules that you and I keep that we have to observe. Um, I ran track and field in high school in the dark ages, a long time ago. But when I ran track and field and we ran on the track and we ran the shorter distances, we had to stay in our lane. That's one of the things I liked about track. No contact. You're not supposed to touch anybody. I like that. And so you get in your lane and you stay in your lane. You step out of your lane, you have fouled out, disqualified, can't run anymore, so you stay in your lane. There's rules. Now, when I went to a track meet as a, as a kid and I got ready to run, I didn't think as I got set up in the blocks and I got ready to run, I thought, oh boy, I get to keep the rules. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about the rules. Yes, I got the rules. You, you don't want to start out too soon. They, don't, they take a dim view to early starts. They call them false starts. And, um, and, but I wasn't thinking about the rules. Why was I doing it? Because I love to run. I love to run. I enjoyed it. My wife and I have been married almost 36 years. I can do math fast. <laughs> 36 years. You know, I try to do it. I don't do it every morning. But you know, when the kids were young, they all had chores. And I was the chore master. Okay? Any of you kids have chores? Shame on you. You all should have chores. And um, they had chores, but they've all left. And so most of those chores come back on, on dad and mom, right? And so I have to help out more. I remember every Saturday morning, I used to get the boys up, and they had to mow the grass. And we had a mower for the backyard. We had a mower for the front yard. We had somebody who swept. I did the delicate things like edging and weeding, things where they could cut things off. You know, we, I didn't let them touch those things. And they used to tell me, getting them up early on a Saturday morning, Dad, what are you going to do when we all leave? I said, I'm going to save so much money on groceries when you all leave, I can hire somebody to do it. And I did. My wife and I have been married. I get up in the morning. I don't do it every day, but, but most of the time I grab the hamper or dirty clothes. I take it in the washroom. 
not a big deal, but it has to be done. Somebody's got to do it. Would kill an ordinary man. Amen. Thank you. I go and I open up the dishwasher. She's not even up yet. I open the dishwasher, get the dishes out, put the dishes away. Some of you men feeling convicted yet? They're chores. They have to be done. Little things like that. Now, my wife and I married almost 36 years. I don't get up thinking, oh boy, I get to be faithful to my wife today. I keep the rules. Oh boy, I get to do the chores. Oh boy, I get to take care of the bills. I don't get up thinking of those things. I am passionate about my wife. Y'all know what my nickname for is? The hot blonde. I am passionate about my wife. I love my wife. There's nobody, I love all of you, I love all of you, but there's nobody here I'd rather sit and hold her hand than my wife. When you and I ignore the rules, we become lawless. We ignore our passion. It doesn't matter whether you keep the rules or not. I'm saying you should. But when you lose your passion, you lose the one thing your father wants most from you and your spouse and everybody else you know is your passion. I want to give you a a statement, and then I'm going to read something Moses wrote. But here's the statement. And this is going to help you understand why some kids walk away from church and never come back. Listen, keeping the rules without an authentic relationship with God is action without passion. And it is so important that Moses is saying to the generation that's about to enter the promised land to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your might, your strength, love him with all you got, okay? Because if you don't love him, and you don't transfer that passion to your son and your son's son, if you don't transfer that passion down, they will always rebel against the rules. Always. Your passion and the love of God and the relationship you have with God is the rationale for doing all the right things. It's why we do the right things. Listen to what Moses says in uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Dad, why do we do all this silly stuff? Why do we sacrifice these animals? Why do we do all of these rules and regulations regarding our clothes and what we wear in our houses and and fungus that gets in the house and all these crazy things. Why do we keep all the rules? It might be a Baptist kid saying, Dad, why do we go to church every Sunday? Why do we have to go on Sunday night? Why do we have to go on Wednesday night? Why do we keep the rules? Why don't we smoke or chew or go with girls who do? Or something like that. And the father looks at the son and he says, because that's what Baptists do. I mean, how far is that going to fly? Or, or the dad looks at him and says, because we're Jewish, son. You ought to be proud to be Jewish. And that's why we do all these things. Is that what he says to say? Listen to what he says. Then you shall say to your son. Now listen carefully. 
We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. Son, why do we have all these rules? Why do we keep all these rules? Why? Why do we try to be good? Because our God, the God I serve, son, he changed my life. I was lost. My daddy was lost. My grandfather was lost. Men in my family have not been faithful to their wives. They have broken marriages. My birth father was married five times. I can talk to you at length about the generations behind me. My God reached down. I wasn't looking for him. He found me. He saved me. He changed me. And son, that's why I follow him. That's why I go to church. That's why I try to keep the rules. Our God brought us out of Egypt. We were in slavery. He set us free. Keeping the rules without an authentic relationship with God is action without passion. So God, he links the rules to our passion. He didn't say just pass all the rules down on how to be a good Baptist. He said pass your passion for God. How do you do that? I want to talk to you next about four marks of a contagious passion for God. We're going to go back to the first part of chapter 6. Four marks of a contagious passion for God. Social psychologists and police will tell you that in an old building, an empty building, that if one window is broken out, you got to repair it. You need to repair it. And why is that? Because they know from experience and they know because of human nature that if one window is broken, eventually all the windows will be broken out. All of them will be broken out. And so I brought a, a frame this morning and... Uh, Thank you, Irene. She's back there. She got it out for me. A frame, okay, a window. And what they said is if, if one window's broken, you've got to fix it because eventually all the windows will be broken out. It's not because in some neighborhoods there are people who are uh, just more passionate about breaking windows and in other neighborhoods there are people who just love uh, unbroken windows. It's because a broken window is a symbol that nobody cares about the building. You see? And when that window's broken, it communicates a message. Nobody has to be there. No one has to say anything. But that broken window conveys a message. Your passion for God, there are four windows that people can look through. And they can see your passion. Four windows that you want to inspect regularly and make sure that they're in good order. Four windows that as your children look in, they see if you're the real deal or not. They see your passion. There's no guarantee, no guarantee that you're going to influence the people that you're praying for the most. No promises there, no guarantees there. But your passion is instrumental. It's the most important thing. You want to, you want to keep the fire burning in your own heart. There are four windows you need to give attention to. What are those four windows? Window number one. Window number one. His words in your heart. His words in your heart. In verse 6, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be, where? In your heart. 
I've said this before. I want to underscore it again. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible says of itself, the Greek word is theonoustos in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by God, given by inspiration of God. It means literally it's God-breathed. It's the breath of God. And do you believe that? I believe it. It is the Word of God. Now, what he's saying is that this breath of God will do you and no one you know, it won't do them any good as long as it stays between the covers of your Bible. This word, he says, that I'm speaking to you needs to be where? In your heart. In your heart. It needs to be part of who you are. It needs to be in your mind. It needs to color your thought life. It needs to color your emotions. It needs to order your thoughts. It needs to be part of what goes on in your daily life. You say, well, pastor, I don't, I don't read well. That's all right. They got the Bible on CD now. You can stick it in your, your ear, and you can listen to it all day long, whatever you do. And so you have access to the Word of God. There's no, no reason not to have access to it. And, and so how do you, what is your relationship like to the Word of God? That's a reflection of your passion for God. Do you love to read it? Do you love to know what it says? When you're hurting, do you turn to it to read what it's saying? When you need answers and you've got deep questions, do you search the scriptures for answers? When trying to understand a problem and, and, and you're looking for guidance and light, in Psalm 119, he says, your word is a light to my direction, my path, my feet, my steps. And, and so do you look at the scripture on a regular basis? And, and do you absorb it into your life? Now look, that's a window, Moses is saying. This word I speak to you needs to be in your heart. That's a window. The people around you know your relationship to God's word. They do. Because there's a big window there, and they, they, they can discern, they can see what your relationship is like to God's word. Now, I'm not talking about just the words on the printed page. I'm talking about what God is saying to you through that book. Is God speaking to you? Do you receive it as God's word for you today, right now? So loving it, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it. We know it's true. We know it's from him. But do we understand it is life for our soul? Man shall not live, Jesus said, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is life to you, just like air to your lungs. And that's the first window. Do your kids, your family, ever see you reading it? Just reading it. His words in your heart. Second one, second window. His words in your home. His words in your home. Verse 7a, the first part of 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. Do you do that? Do you teach God's word to your children? You say, well, why that? that's why I bring them up to church. It's not what the Bible says. Do you teach them to your children? Do you teach them to your children? God's intent is that the primary instructor of your children regarding the word of God is not your Sunday school teacher of your children, not your pastor, but moms and dads. 
that we would pour into them the truth of God's Word. And he says to teach them diligently, and I love that word, diligently, to teach it diligently, because it's got, there's two word pictures that capture that. It's, it's the concept of a drill. Teach them diligently means to do it just like a drill, to drill it in, to go round and round and round on the same point. Have you ever said to your kids, if I told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Nobody ever said that? Or for the millionth time, well, that's good teaching, by the way. <laughs> it's going round and round and round on the same point. Or the other word picture that's here is a whetstone. And when you sharpen a knife with a whetstone, you bring that blade down at an angle, right? And you slide it across that stone. But do you do it just one time? No. If you've sharpened a blade that way, you've got to do it repeatedly. You bring that blade down, you, sh- you bring it across that whetstone again and again and again. And that's a window to your passion. Because as you talk to your kids about things that God is showing you, things that you've learned from the Lord, lessons that he has taught you, and you begin to apply that to their life, and you begin to use teachable moments, conversations with them, time spent with them to share God's truth, it's a window to your passion. How's that window doing? Is that window clear and shiny? Can they see right in? Do they get that right away? There's a third window. The third window is his words in your conversation. His words in your conversation. The rest of the verse says, and shall talk of them. These are the words of God. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, that's your private life, and when you walk by the way, that's your public life, and when you lie down and when you rise. That's from can see to can't see. When, when your, your entire waking life Does God ever come up in your conversation? Does his truth ever enter into your conversation with friends, neighbors, family, kids, co-workers? Does God's word enter into the picture? That's a window to your passion. You say, well, pastor, I don't believe we're supposed to talk about God's word all the time. Well, what do you talk about all the time? Because what you talk about all the time, that's your passion. That's your passion. And so that's why your passion is exposed. It's like a window. And her passion for God, one of those passions, you cannot hide a passion for God in a human heart. It just boils over. And you're going to talk about him. Man, just the other day, God showed me this in his word. I'm learning this. This happened. This week, we had two young men trust Christ in the office. I shared that with the deacons this morning. And, and uh, Dustin met with them, and they they. One of them is going to be baptized next Sunday. I praise the Lord for that. I'm going to to tell somebody about that. You know? Man, it's something I I didn't, I wasn't a part of it. I wasn't a part of it at all. But I got to see God do that. I heard about it. That's something to repeat. Let's gossip about that. Hey, did you hear? What? Two guys got saved at church. And it becomes a window to our passion, those things that we talk about all the time. You do it. You do it anyway. But it's revealing your real passion as you do. And so it becomes a way, it becomes a mark. How's my passion? How's my passion? Well, what do I talk about all the time? Does it mark my conversation? And then the fourth window, the last one I want you to see, is his words to your world. His words to your world. This is the last window, verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your 
hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, years later, Jewish people literally did this. They would take the Shema, Hebrews 6, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God is one. They would take the Shema in Hebrew, write it on a piece of paper, roll it up, put it in a little leather box, and they would tie it to their forehead. They still do this. Uh, they would take a, a similar little leather box, they would tie it to their hand. Or they would put it in a little, little box, they would call it a mezuzah, and they would put it on the doorpost of their home. And every time they entered the home, they would touch it, and they would say, the Lord our God is one. And every time they left the house, they would, say, they would touch it and say, the Lord our God is one. Do you think that's what Moses was saying to do? They lived in tents for crying out loud. Do you think that's what he had in mind? I think he had something much more profound in mind. I believe he was saying, look, the Word of God should affect everything you do. The Word of God should affect everything you think. The Word of God should affect what's in your house and what's not in your house. It should affect your possessions to where anybody can walk in your house and there's a consistency between God's Word and what they see in your home what they see that you own, what they see that you possess and the way you handle those possessions. And he says, and, he, and, and I believe that's true because he says, you shall bind them as a sign, as a sign. That word sign means a symbol, a nonverbal communication. That when people see these, the way that you're living, the way that you think, the way you make decisions, the things that you have, the things that you don't have, the way you handle stuff, as they look at those things, they're going to say, there is something different about that guy. And as they get close to you, they see the other three windows, they discover it's your passion. And it just bleeds through. Not a word being said, but it colors your life. Your passion for God just oozes out into all those other areas. passion for God. The one thing he wants from you, the one thing he wants from me, more than anything else. One commandment that Jesus said was more important than all the rest. Love God. Love God. Love him. And love him in such a way that it influences Everybody in your house. Let your love for him be so obvious that everybody around you knows what you're passionate about. It should never be a secret that you're a follower and a lover of Jesus Christ. Not because you're pounding people over the head with the Bible every day, but just because you're passionate. Your passion is so obvious. Just so obvious.